If you would, take your Bibles with me and turn to Revelation chapter 21. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 21. If you're just visiting with us, we're continuing through a series uh, of sermons in which we're working through the book of Revelation. Started out in 27 messages to cover the book, and so today is 26. So this isn't some kind of a simply special Thanksgiving text we've chosen. Um, in fact, we've been joking in the office this week that oftentimes we say, uh, it's Mother's Day, Happy Mother's Day. You open your Bible to Ezekiel. You know, um, we just keep, keep trucking on, and so this morning, Revelation 21 is our text, but indeed, it is a fitting text on this day, a day, a weekend we've set aside to give thanks as a people. This is a, uh, the consummation of everything for which we thank God. And so, if you've turned to Revelation 21, would you stand to honor the reading of God's Word one more time? I'm going to read Revelation 21, 1 through 22, verse 5. Hear the reading of God's Word. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And they heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And behold, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done on the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give payment from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son." But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven pl last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels on the gates. The names of the twelve tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall one hundred and forty-four cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement." The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. 
The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Then the angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, now as we look at this glorious vision of our blessed hope, would you help us to fix our eyes on this glorious picture? And Lord, would you just root this deep in our heart? There's going to be days, if maybe it's today, and if it's not today, there is going to be a day when we need so desperately to hold on to this hope of glory. Because the sufferings of this world are going to feel so intense. The temptations and the trials are going to be pressing against us so hard that we are going to want to grow weary in doing good and give up in holding faith, faith, fast in our faith to Christ. There are going to be days in which we are going to feel like we cannot press on any longer. And even as Moses faced his own disappointments and therefore cried out, Lord, show me your glory that he might be sustained to press on in persevering faith. So we thank you this morning for this picture of glory. May you use it to help us press on in persevering faith and faithful obedience to Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite stories I heard while in seminary came from a professor, my doctoral supervisor, Steve Wellam. He and I one day were just sharing stories about the, one of the difficulties of ministry being sometimes you just don't even know what to do. And so he shared one of such stories. He said he was pastoring, the first church he pastored, he was pastoring there and a lady in the church had gotten sick and she was in the hospital, an elderly lady, and she was near death. And everybody knew it. And so he knew as her pastor he should go visit her. But he thought to himself, what in the world do I say? What do I say to someone who, uh, the doctors were giving minutes. I mean, any, any minute now, any day now, she was going to go on and, and be with the Lord. And so he said he, got it, he grabbed his Bible and he jumped in his car and he drove on his way to the hospital thinking, surely by the time I get there, I'll think of something to say. 
But he got to the hospital and he didn't know of anything. So he said, instead of taking the elevator, I'll take the stairs. That'll give me a longer time. And surely by the time I get to the top of the stairs, I'll, I'll think of something to say. We got to the top of the stairs. He still had nothing. So, so he walked over to her room and nervously, having nothing to say, knocked on her door and she told him he could come in. And so he walked in. He said he told her his name and, and who he was. And then still having nothing to say, he just opened his Bible and sat down to a text that told of the glories of eternity and he just started reading. And after he had read just minute after minute of scriptural text, he thought to himself, at some point, I've got to stop and say something. I just don't know what to say. So finally, he built his courage up, still not knowing what to say, praying, God, give me insight, let me know what to say. And, and he stopped reading. And he looked up at her, and as he did, she reached out her hand and touched his and said, no, 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 just keep reading. I need to hear of that glorious hope. Now that story to me was both a reminder of the power of God's Word, that oftentimes when we're searching for what to say, it's the Word that can be powerful. But it's also a reminder, I think, of our need to think on, to gaze on, to focus ourselves on the hope of our glorious eternity. Perhaps when we're children, it seems that sometimes we have a lot of questions, a fascination about eternity. So maybe we, we ask our parents or somebody else, well, well, we know people in heaven, you know, what will heaven be like, or something like this. And yet, as we grow older, uh, those, that, that fixation on eternity can fade from our minds. Probably because we look around and we feel like there are other more pressing things in our life, no need to think on the glories of eternity. But that's not the view of the Bible. The view of the Bible isn't that we should think about heaven or eternity when we're young and then let it fade from our minds when we get older or mature and realize there's more to life than just thinking about what is to come after this life. The view of the Bible is not that. Paul says in Romans 8.18 that one of the reasons he's able to press on and endure suffering is because he thinks about the glory to come. And he reminds himself that the suffering of this age is not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to him. He says that in Romans 8.18. In 1 Corinthians 15, he showed that his hope was so fixated on the resurrection and the eternal hope that that brings that he says, listen, if there's no resurrection, we're to be of all men most pitied. Clearly, the Bible focuses us on the glorious hope of eternity. That's what the Bible gives us so that we can fix ourselves on and hold fast during times when we're struggling. Therefore, it shouldn't be a surprise that in the book of Revelation that's written to churches and believers who are struggling and being tempted and being tried and being persecuted and are finding it hard to persevere and press on in the faith, it's not surprising then that the book ends with this glorious picture of eternity, probably the most glorious picture of eternity that's given to us in the Bible right here. And yet, and yet, Jesus not only saw fit to end the book this way, He began it that way. If you'll think back to the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, remember at the end of every one of them, He would say to them, if you would conquer, to the one who conquers, that is to the one who holds fast and, fast and, and faithfully endures in faith, what He promises them are all of these things of glorious hope. He said, you'll take part in the tree of life. The tree of life we read here. You'll not be hurt by the second death, the second death that we read that, that will escape if our names are written in the book of life. We'll become a pillar in the temple of God. Uh, the very reality we see in this text. We'll sit with Christ, with Him on His throne. The very image that's given to us in this text as we reign with Christ. 
So even though it feels like, and it probably felt like when we, as we've gone through the book, so much of the book of Revelation is about the judgment of God's enemies, and indeed it is, it's bookended by this picture of the glorious hope that awaits God's children. Therefore, this morning, if you're struggling, and you're thinking, I don't know how I can press on. I don't know if I can endure. I've been obeying, but it's getting more difficult. And I want to just turn. I, I feel like I, I've labored so faithfully that, that sin would just be the easier route to go. If you're there and you're struggling, the Lord has given us this glorious picture of eternity saying, hold this in mind. This is what we hope for. And let it strengthen you to press on. Therefore, what I want to do this morning is just show you in this text uh, four characteristics of what our eternal hope of glory is like so that we might think of it more clearly and therefore, I hope, fix our eyes on it and walk faithfully in this life. One of the things that John then shows us in Revelation 21.1 through 22.5 when we think about eternity first is that everything linked to the reign of sin and death in this age will be gone and all will be made new. So if you ask the question, what's eternity going to be like? Well, characteristic number one, everything linked to the reign of sin and death in this age will be gone. And all will be made new. The chapter begins, Revelation 21.1, with John writing, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth... For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And that's just fitting because chapter 20 had ended with the Lord judging men and, and the earth and the sky fleeing away as if the earth had dissolved. So it's fitting then, if, if the earth is gone, if everything's dissolved, what's next? So John begins, there's a new heaven and a new earth. And this idea isn't unique to John. It's not unique to the book of Revelation. Throughout the Bible, there's a consistent promise that there's coming a day when there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 65, 17, Behold, God says, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Isaiah 66, verse 22, the Lord declares He's going to make, quote, a new heavens and a new earth. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, Peter writes, But according to his promise, we're awaiting a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then finally, in Romans 8, 21, Paul talks about that this created order itself that was subjected to and cursed. You remember when Adam sinned, the ground itself was cursed. The rocks, the trees, the sky, this heavens, and this earth has been cursed because of man's sin. And yet, Paul argues in Romans chapter 8 that God subjected it to a curse in hope that one day it might be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of of the children of God. Well, Revelation 21.1 is now the consummation of that promise. You see, just as our hope for eternity, our ultimate hope in eternity, is not being absent from our bodies and floating around. Our eternal hope is not. This is what I grew up thinking my entire life, that eternity would just be some kind of bodiless existence floating around in a kind of physicalless world, maybe floating around on clouds. You see this imagery sometimes on television, playing harps and such. Um, and it always seemed weird to me. And it is weird, because that's not biblical. 
Our eternal hope isn't being without our bodies, without a physical world forever, just kind of floating around on clouds, as Russ Morris said, as if we're having eternal choir practice, you know? Uh, that is not our eternal hope. Rather, the eternal hope is pictured right here. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Now, when we ask the question, what is this new heavens and this new earth going to be like? It's a bit hard to answer, isn't it? I mean, think about our, our, our bodies. Our, our bodies, we know they're going to be resurrected, and yet they're going to pass away, aren't they? I mean, if we, if we die, if we live long enough that Christ returns in our lifetime, then we'll be immediately transformed to be with Him. But if we die, something's going to happen to our bodies. They'll be burned up. They may be obliterated by nuclear explosion. Uh, we could die and our bodies be put in the ground and they return to dust. But somehow our bodies are going to be eliminated or obliterated or dissolved. And yet the Lord is going to raise our bodies. So He's going to take what's been dissolved, what's been decayed, and make something new of it. Now, now is, it, is it going to be just like my body now except somehow better? We don't know exactly. Paul uses the illustration of 1 Corinthians 15 of, of a seed put in the ground that brings forth something. So you put a seed and it brings forth a plant and you say, that, that plant is what I put in the ground. And yet it's, it's different than that seed. Paul says the seed is just the bare kernel. So is it with our bodies. There's, there's continuity and yet discontinuity. It's different. It's better. It's perfected. Well, so in the new heavens and the earth, we shouldn't be surprised that the earth is spoken of as dissolving or passing away, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be made new. In fact, it is. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. The one thing we know about this new heavens and this new earth is the very point I've made here in the text. Sin and death and their effects will have no mark in that new world. There won't be sin there won't be death, and any of the effects of sin and death will be all gone. We've never known a universe like that. This is one thing that we see in verse 1 when the text mentions and at the end of verse 1, and the sea was no more. It doesn't mean there won't be sea, if you will, salt water. Perhaps there will. Uh, this is symbolic, but throughout the whole Bible, the sea is the place where often God's enemies rise up. So in uh, Isaiah chapter 27, the Lord speaks of Leviathan, the great serpent of old. He comes out of the sea. Well, when Revelation 21.1 says, John says, I see this new heavens and new earth and there's no more sea, I don't think he's making a statement about water. I think he's saying there are no enemies of God present. It's not there. But not only that, but even the effects of sin. Go, go down to verse 4. I'll come back to verses 2 and 3, but go down to verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. It may be, that if John were to state positively every aspect of the glory of this creation, that we just couldn't comprehend it. So one of the things that he says is, listen, all of the stuff that's tied to sin and death will be no more. No more sea, no more enemies of God, no more death, no more sin, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. All of that is gone. It's tied to the old age and everything will be made new. And it's certain that's the point he's making in verses 5 through 7. It's the one seated on the throne in verse 5 who says, Behold, I am making all things new. 
And he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The idea of the Alpha and the Omega means the Lord is, is, is the beginning of all things and the end of all things, and he encompasses everything in the middle. It's the Lord saying, listen, there's nothing that can stop me from bringing this about. To the thirsty, I'll give the spring of water of life without payment. One of the great promises of God is that when He raises us from the dead, we will be called His sons. Those who will be like Him, who can resemble Him and reflect His glory in the world. This is why verse 7 He says, The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be His God and He will be my son. And a reminder too that there will be nothing evil there is verse 8. This reminder that the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will have no part in the new creation, but their part will be in the second death. Some commentators have suggested, and it may be true, that every unbeliever obviously will be thrown in the lake of fire. We've seen that already. But maybe Paul, or maybe John rather has in mind specifically here those individuals who may have even professed faith in Christ and yet throughout their lives showed themselves not to be true believers. Individuals who professed faith in Christ, and yet when push came to shove, came to shove they turned aside from the profession. And commentators suggested maybe that's why John begins this group as describing them in verse 8 as the cowardly. That's, it's not the description we would first think of when unbelievers, would we? When we think of unbelievers bringing us great agony in life, we don't think, yes, they're cowards. It's not our first thought. We probably think they are, they are persecutors, they're murderers. But the first mention here is cowardly, and the last one mentioned is liars. Perhaps because John does have in mind, yes, though all unbelievers will go to the lake of fire, the second death, it also is going to include those who show themselves not to be genuine believers by not persevering, by not holding fast to the faith, by not holding to their confession. And so when we think about then, what is eternity going to be like? The first thing that we need to see is that Everything linked to the reign of death and sin in this age will be gone and all things will be made new. A second thing we see in the text, and I think the main thing we see in the text, is this. We will be with our Lord as His people and we will dwell in safety forever. We will be with our Lord as His people and we will dwell in safety forever. I think this is the prevailing theme of this text, that God's people are going to be with Him, and He's going to be with us, and we'll be secure in Him forever. We see it right off the bat. In verses 2 and 3, John writes, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he, will, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now this imagery of a bride, of the people of God being a bride, is common throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, Israel was referred to as God's bride. God was their husband. They were his wife. They were to be faithful with him. This is why when the Israelites commit idolatry, God doesn't simply say, you're committing idolatry. He says, you're committing adultery. Because I had married you to myself. This is the images. When they break the covenant and God puts them away, the prophets use the language of divorce. It's a marriage relationship that's being pictured. 
When Jesus Christ comes on the scene, lives a perfect life, sheds his blood, dies on the cross, and is raised on the third day, redeeming a people for himself, Paul said that relationship of Christ and his redeemed church is the very reason why marriage had been given. Because marriage pictured that relationship of Christ and His church. So throughout the Bible, the imagery of, of, of God and Israel or Christ and His church are consistently that of marriage. The groom and His bride. And so when John sees then this imagery of a bride adorned for her husband coming down, this is a reference to the people of God. Now what can be confusing here is that John, and, and, and Revelation as a whole, and really all of apocalyptic literature, this, this literary form here, they mix their metaphors. They overlap metaphors, don't they? And when we teach people in writing, we say, don't, don't, don't mix your metaphors. So if you're, if you're referring to someone and you're using the me- or something and you're using the reference of a child, well, don't, in the next sentence, use a different metaphor for the same reality and use the reference of a wife. Because it's creepy. It just sounds like, well, now a man's marrying a child, right? It's weird. Don't, don't mix your metaphors. Stick with one, right? Well, apocalyptic literature breaks that rule. It mixes metaphors all the time. What's this is also that. Remember Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. John sees. Oh, there he is. A lamb? Well, is he the lion, not the lamb? No. He is the lion and he is the lamb. It's just a mixture of metaphors. We saw this throughout the book. The church is the temple and is the courtyard outside the temple. Well, here we see this holy city coming down called a bride. Why? Because the city is the bride and the bride are the people of God. It's all mixed together. This new Jerusalem, this holy city coming down, is symbolizing the people of God being with their Lord. It's as if the whole city is is a perfect cube even as the Holy of Holies in the, old, in the temple of old was a perfect cube, and God is saying, here are my people, and I'm with them, and they are with me. But it's not just here that we see a reference to God's people dwelling with them. In fact, it, it runs throughout the entire text. You'll remember when we began our study in the book of Revelation, I said that the numbers uh, symbolized things, and I listed a number of things that numbers symbolized One of the things that the number 12 and multiples of 12 symbolize are the people of God. You see it throughout the book. It's not a mistake that there were 12 apostles. It's not a mistake that there were the 12 tribes of Israel. Think about the book as a whole. Remember in Revelation chapter 7, when God was referencing His people, this great multitude that no man could count from every tongue and every tribe and every people and every nation who had been redeemed. But God does attach a number to them. So remember, no number can count. No man can count, and yet God attaches a number, 144,000. Are we supposed to think of that then as, well, wait, so so they are a number no man can count, or is 144,000? Well, the reality is is that 144,000 number is just symbolic. Uh, 12 times 12 times 1,000. It's the whole of the people of God. And that's the message. Well, you see that continuing here. In verse 9 and 10, uh, the text makes explicit that the city is the bride. The bride is the city. They're the people of God. Verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Well, what's he show him? Verse 10, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem 
coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. And then notice in the text how many times this refrain of 12 or multiples of 12 come about. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the name uh, and at the gates, twelve angels. And on the gates, the name of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. In verse 13, he mentions uh, three gates here, three gates here, three gates here, three gates here, which totals twelve. Then verse 14, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations on them. And they were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. In verse 16, the city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. Verse 17, he also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement. And then at the end of verse 20, we know that there have been 12 stones at that point that have been named, and then verse 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Now you could, you could read these measurements like 144 cubits, and you could turn, if your Bible's just like mine, you can turn one page over to this handy-dandy table of weights and measurements. And you could look, and you could read a cubit's about 18 inches, and you could take 144 times 18 and come up with how many inches this wall was, and say perhaps that's the thickness of the wall. And whatever. But if you did that, and some translations of the Bible even translate it, they do the math for you. And if you do that, or if these translations do that, they're totally missing the point. The point isn't how big the wall is. The point is, and John's screaming it again and again and again with every one of these numbers, God's people are with God. And He is with them. That's why there's 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12,144. Everything is screaming to you. I'm measuring this city, but you get the picture. God's people are with God. And He is with them. And this is God's promise from the very beginning. The language of chapter 21, verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, is not language that John is using by mistake. This is the language of God's continual covenant promises. When God first made a covenant with Israel, he said in Leviticus 26, 11 and 12, I will make my dwelling among you, I'll walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Israel broke that covenant, but the Lord made a new covenant. I'm not, now because Israel's broken the covenant, God says, okay, then I'm, I'm going to give up on my purposes and my plans and, and my work of being among a people and having a people for myself and, and dwelling among them. God does not give up on that. He makes a new covenant promise, one that Bob read earlier from Jeremiah 31, 33. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Or Ezekiel 36, 26 through 28. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So do you see, this is the covenant promise of God from old. I'm going to have a people, and they're going to be my people, my sons, verse 7. I'm going to be their God, and I'm going to dwell with them, and they with me forever. 
Revelation 21 is the fulfillment of that promise. As this holy city comes down, ordained with a, with a radiance of the glory of God, what's happening is God dwells there, as if the whole thing is the Holy of Holies. God's presence is there, and yet what it is is the people of God. So the message is God is with His people. His people are with their God, and He dwells with them forever. And it will be, <coughs> excuse me, and our dwelling with Him will be one of security. Remember back to chapter 11. The Lord had an angel, this, this picture of the temple, and the Lord has an angel measure it. Measure this part of the courtyard. And yet he says, stop there. Don't measure that. What you've measured off is my way of showing the people of God will be protected. That is, we'll be invincible in one sense. No man can pluck us out of the Lord's hands. Satan, though he may ravish us, can do nothing about our eternal hope in Christ. And yet... He says, I want you to leave part of the courtyard of the temple unmeasured, to be trampled by the Gentiles for 42 months. That is, throughout this entire age, even though nothing can, can take us out of the Lord's hands, we will suffer persecution. We will suffer loss of life. We will be tormented sometimes at the hands of the enemies. Under the sovereign guidance of the Lord, yes, but nonetheless, at the hands of the enemies, we'll be tormented and persecuted, struck down. And yet in this picture... The Lord doesn't leave part of it unmeasured, does He? He measures the entire thing. Measure every part. This angel is going to get tired of measuring by the time he's done because the Lord is saying, I'm with my people, they are with me, and they will dwell secure. There's nothing outside to harm them. This is why later we're going to read, the gates of the city can be all the time opened. Why? You shut gates as a thing of protection. We, we need protection from the enemy. Well, don't worry, you're safe. The gates can be open. There's going to be no more night. Again, it's not so much commenting on the physical reality of, of, of what we see in our world. The reality of night there is there's going to be no fear. It's bad things happen at night. This is why uh, the Scripture will use this metaphor often. We're not children of darkness, but children of light. People usually don't commit burglary right, right in broad daylight. They wait till the night. When the new city, there's going to be no more night. Because the Lamb... And the Lord God, the Almighty, will be its light. We are going to dwell with our Lord forever and dwell with Him in safety. So what is eternity like? Well, it's going to be all new. A new heavens and a new earth. No more sin, no more death, and no more effects of it. It also is going to be an eternity in which we're going to dwell with our God and He's going to dwell with us and we're going to be with Him and dwell with Him securely forever. But there's more. We can also add that the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb will be the object of our worship forever. The Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb will be the object of our worship forever. Now John has used this metaphor, the metaphor of the holy city representing the people of God. And if you had gone to Jerusalem, the, uh, the earthly Jerusalem, the city of old, the centerpiece of the city was the temple. Because the temple was the place where God chose to manifest His presence. Yes, it's true. God is everywhere. and He's omnipresent. But He chose to manifest His presence in the temple. So if you're thinking about, yes, yes, Jerusalem, this makes sense, it's great, because in Jerusalem, there's where the temple is. So there's going to be a place in the city where God's presence is, is the temple. But listen to what John says in verses 22 and 23. And I saw no temple in the city, 
For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. You see what John is saying here is, there's not going to be some structure, some isolated structure wherein God manifests His presence. Because God's going to manifest His presence inside the entire city. The whole new creation will be the whole uh, presence of God manifesting. So there won't be any place we can go where we can escape the glorious manifest presence of our God. But the aim also is that He will then, because He is manifesting His presence everywhere, be the center and the focus of our worship. Our honor and tribute and worship will be devoted to Him. That's shown in verses 24 and following. By its light... Will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no more night. They'll bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. And again, this secure uh, reminder in verse 27, Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable and false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You don't have to worry about any enemies coming in to, to harm you or to do anything. It's going to be a glorious place. Well, what about this imagery? of the kings of the earth bringing their glory into the city, of the nations bringing their wealth into the city. What's it saying here? Well, this is picking up on imagery from Isaiah chapter 60. In Isaiah chapter 60, Isaiah is picturing this coming new creation, this new heavens and this new earth. And as Isaiah describes it, he describes it in terms of every nation of the earth and the blessings they had been given by the Lord bringing those blessings in. So was Tarshish a place where they had the best ships in the world? Yes, it was. That was the Lord's gift to them. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, right? So if the Egyptians were able to, to bring great structures, it's the Lord who gives man the ability to do that, right? So the, those of Tarshish, the, Isaiah says, I, I see this new heavens and the new earth, and, and Tarshish, they're bringing their ships into the city. The, the reality, though, is that these ships had one time been used for evil. Now they're being brought into the city to be tribute to the Lord. The Egyptians, if they had the best horses in the world, the Egyptians were bringing their horses. But their horses weren't being used for evil. They were bridled toward the Lord. Isaiah goes on with his examples. Midian, they were bringing their camels. If they had the best camels in the world, here they were. Kedar was bringing their flocks. Lebanon was bringing their cypress and their pine. And on and on and on, the kings and the nations were bringing their glory and their wealth all in tribute to the Lord. The point was this. Isaiah said, I'm looking down. I see this coming new creation. And it's going to be a time and a place in which all of the nations of the earth bring their tribute to the Lord. This is not, I think, a text in which we, we try to figure out how that's, how's that going to work. Is there going to be something glorious in this world that's going to be shown in the next, perhaps? But the point of the text, I think more so, is simply, even as Isaiah saw in the terms of his age, all of the nations bringing their tribute and their honor and their worship to the Lord, John is saying to us, that's what eternity is going to be like. Christ, the Lamb, God, the Lord Almighty will be the center of everything and all of us 
Every redeemed individual from every nation of the earth will bring everything we have to give in tribute to the Lord. Our lives will be about worship. We know in this life, we're supposed to do everything we do to the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, and we so utterly fail at it, don't we? So many things we, we, we do are things that we take and we use them for evil, but no more. On that day, everything we'll do will bring honor to glory and glory to Jesus Christ. Everything we, we say will be a tribute to Him. All of our life will just overflow in worship to Him. That's the picture of these nations bringing their glory and their honor into the city to Christ. All things will be made new. No more sin and no more death. We're going to dwell with our God and He with us securely forever. The Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb will be our object of our worship forever. And then finally we see that we will know the blessings of eternal life and reigning with Christ forever. We'll know the blessings of eternal life and reigning with Christ forever. What are the blessings of eternal life? What are the blessings of reigning with Christ? Well, they're pictured here in Revelation 22, 1-5. Now, it's better understood if you think back to the beginning of the Bible to this time of paradise. Remember, Adam and Eve were created, they were put in the garden, and the Lord said everything was very good. Adam was there with his Lord. Eve was there with her Lord. He was with his people. They were with God. There were no enemies uh, attacking. It was a time of glory. And that picture in that garden, that was so short-lived, but it was paradise, wasn't it? And in that garden, the Lord had given them means to be sustained for all of life, a, a tree of life from which they could eat and live forever. He had given them a river that flowed out of Eden to across, out of Eden to other parts of the world so that wherever this river went, everything could be good and nourished. The Lord was sustaining His people and providing for His people. It was a, it was a blessing. And yet we know what happened, don't we? This time of paradise was short-lived. We don't need anyone to tell us right now that paradise has been lost. We feel it. The world doesn't look like one giant Eden, does it? Adam and Eve sinned against God and they were removed and they were removed from the blessings of eternal life. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, 22 through 24, we read that the Lord God set at post a cherub, an angel, who would guard Adam and Eve from coming back into the garden lest they eat of that tree of life and live forever. They were going to experience death and curse of this world. And yet God made a promise one day he would come and crush the head of the serpent. One day he would come and, and bring life to his people. And when Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life, when he came and died on the cross to pay for the sins of anyone who would believe in him, and when he was raised on the third day, every one of God's promises of salvation had been made secure. That's what we read earlier in Revelation 5. That's why all of heaven is worshiping. Because God's promises, every one of them, are yes and amen in Christ. He has made them certain by His life and His death and His resurrection and His reigning right now at the Father's right hand. And yet, as the author of Hebrews says, I do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. 
I look around and I see a world where there's still death and there is still mourning and there is still pain. And yet on this day when all things are made new and, and everything associated with sin and death and its effects have been removed, then all of the blessings of that paradise of eternity will be felt again. Look at Revelation 22, 1 through 5. It, it's as if it's Eden and yet better. Verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Because it's flowing from the throne and from the uh, throne of the Lamb, it's symbolizing that it is God, it is the Lamb who is providing this nourishment to us. Our nourishment, our sustenance comes from Him. Verse 2, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. God's providing everything we need for eternal life. Verse 3, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. So it's just a summary of so much of what we've seen before. Nothing accursed, everything made new. Verse 3, We're with our Lord, with our God, with the Lamb. They'll be in it. And then the end of verse 3, And His servants will worship Him. That's just a summary of every point we've seen so far. And then verse 4, they will see His face. Now, if you've known the Bible, you know no man has been able to do this. Moses cried out when he, he walked down and he saw Aaron and the Israelites worshiping the golden calf right after he had received the law. This was going to be the glorious return to paradise, wasn't it? Moses had been given the law. He could come down and tell the people, here's how you live. They were going to obey. Everything could be great. And yet instantly when he comes down with the law, they are already violating the commandments of God, having fashioned the golden calf and worshiping. And, and Moses is just heartbroken. In fact, the Lord says, Moses, I'm not going to be with my people. I'll let you go into the promised land. You can have the land, have the big grapes, have the flowing milk and honey. I won't be there. And Moses says, God, if your presence isn't with us, we don't want to go. Because what distinguishes us from any other people on the face of the earth except that you, our God, are with us? So God says, yes, I will be in your presence. When they build the camp, ultimately, and they build the tabernacle, the tabernacle's right there in the middle of the camp. God's with his people. But Moses needs something else. He needs a picture of God's glory. So he says, God, show me your glory. And God says to him, Moses, I will show you my glory, but no man can see my face and live. You can't do it. In this life, there's no chance of seeing the face of God because he's so utterly, perfectly holy. And yet the one who makes him known, the Lamb. Here we read the fulfillment then of what Moses could not experience, of what David could not experience. That is our eternal hope, verse 4. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. A, a marker as it's been throughout the book. Uh, the fact that he has labeled us. He says we are his. Verse 5, night will be no more. They will need no lamp, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign with Him forever and ever. This is the picture that Paul's talking about when he says, I reckon that the sufferings of this world are not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. What is eternity going to be like? It's going to be a time forever in which everything will be made new, 
No more sin, no more death, nothing tied to it. It'll be a time and a place in which we're going to dwell in the very presence of our God, and He with us, and we will dwell securely. He, our God, and we, His people. It's going to be an eternity in which everything we do, nothing will, will tear us away from God. There's going to be no action or no word we say or no thought we think in which we're going to instantly regret it like so much of what we do now. But everything we do will bring honor and tribute and worship to Him. And we'll know the blessings of eternal life being sustained by Him forever, reigning with Him forever, and knowing the blessings of the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb forever. This is our hope. And therefore, this morning, my exhortation to you is hold fast. I know life may be hard. I know obedience may be hard. But hold fast. Press on in faithful obedience. Press on in holding to faith to Christ. Press on in, in, in holding to the testimony, Jesus Christ is my Lord. And this will be our eternal hope. If you're not a believer this morning, Right now, you're on a trajectory so that this isn't your eternal hope. Rather, in the chapters before, we saw on the final day, if your name is not found written in the book of life, and the, re the reason people's names are in the book of life is because they have faith in the one who lived and who died and who was raised for them. Those whose names are not found written in the book of life will not know any of this, but they'll be thrown into a lake of fire that is called the second death. We refer to it as hell. If you do not place your faith in Jesus Christ and you do not bow your knee to Him, then God and the Lamb will not just overlook that on the last day. They will not say, oh well. Rather, you will suffer the Lamb's eternal wrath and torment. And so I plead with you today, don't die in your sins. Don't die refusing to bow the knee in faith to Jesus Christ. Rather, do what we've seen this morning. Place your faith in Jesus Christ and say, He is my Lord. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised the one who died for your sins from the dead. And the text says, you will be saved. And then, but you say, but how do I mark it? If I, if I just believe, if I distrust, you can do that right now in your seat. You don't need to do anything special. Right now, if you're not a believer, just trust in Jesus Christ. Rest in Him alone. But how do I make it known that I've done that? Because no one can see my faith right now. That's right, I can't. And man has devised all kinds of means of making this known. But here's the way the Bible says to make it known. Right now, if your faith is in Jesus Christ for the first time, the Bible says that we make that known through the act of baptism. How do you say to the world, by faith I've been united with the one who lived and who died and who was raised so that he lives again? The answer is by getting in water. And through this visible act of being immersed in the water, show you're united with the one who died for you. And by being raised from the water, show that you're united with the one who was raised from the dead. So if you're not a believer, I plead with you to place your faith in Jesus Christ and then make that public. If you are a believer this morning, your faith is in Jesus Christ and you've professed that faith, then we want to invite you to come to the table this morning. As we come to the table week by week, we have gotten to say throughout this series of revelation and Lord willing to the end of our lives, Lord, we are enduring. Though it is hard, though it is difficult, though we are being pressed on every side, every time we take this bread and take this cup, it is an opportunity for us to visibly proclaim, Lord, I'm holding fast to the faith. My testimony is that the one who died and the one who shed his blood for me, he is my Lord. So this morning, we're going to take a moment of silence. 
and they're going to come to the table. The ushers and the musicians are going to come forward in that moment of silence. They're going to distribute the cups. We're going to distribute the bread. And then we'll all eat of it together. We'll all drink of it together, proclaiming Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen one, as our hope. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table this morning.